This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on SiriusXM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Executive Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And today I am joined by my dear colleague and co-host, Mike Yusin. Our third host, Jeff Klein, is out today. Mike, how are you? Uh, Ann, I'm doing great. How about you? I am good, Mike. I always enjoy being here. And today we have a very special treat Mike, I know you've had this experience. We have on occasion had former students on the show. And today I have one. I have one who is the CEO and co-founder of the Moody Tongue Brewing Company in Chicago. Now, Mike, I will just remind you, we have had some CEOs of wine companies. Mike, you'll recall we spoke with Drew Bledsoe of Doubleback. We also recently spoke with Judd Wallenbrock of Mondavi, right? And the owner of Charles Krug. Yes. But we have never had a CEO and co-founder of a brewing company. So today, with a little bit of warm up, I'm really delighted to welcome Jeremy Cohn. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is an honor just to have a conversation here. So I, I appreciate it. Oh, well, really wonderful to have you. Let me just say a little word about you. Uh, And Mike, I'm going to sound a little bit like a a proud parent here, but Jeremy is one of our uh, truly wonderful and outstanding graduates of the University of Pennsylvania, earned a Bachelor of Science in Economics with three concentrations, finance, management, and real estate. And now the bio doesn't tell you this, but he also was a dean's list. Every single year he was a student at Wharton and graduated summa cum laude. Now, there are not many people who can brag about you in this way, (laughs) Jeremy, so bear with me. After graduation, went into the field of finance. And uh, Jeremy, I'm just really curious what caused you to leap from finance to a brewing company? <laughs> yeah, I, I would say that that was certainly a strange twist in, in my career path. Um, and I would say you probably don't find many folks, you know, jumping from finance to beer or, or finance to hospitality, generally speaking. Um, but to be totally forthright, you know, for a while I'd had an interest in entrepreneurship. You know, most of my coursework, if you had an opportunity to look back on the management side, was in entrepreneurship. Um, and so for a little while, I had been looking at different opportunities, actually, truthfully, with another Wharton alum from my class, uh, Samir Kurtain. Uh, and for, for better or worse, you know, this opportunity fell into my lap. And I think that's just how it happens sometimes. Uh, and my business partner, who coincidentally is also my first cousin, uh, does have a professional background in both the culinary arts and brewing uh, he went to the Culinary Institute of America. He worked at a number of Michelin-starred restaurants. He was actually the head brewmaster of Goose Island here in Chicago uh, before leaving to start Moody Tongue. And uh, shortly after the brewery was purchased by Anheuser-Busch, he you know, started reaching out, uh, I think, to folks with the idea of what had really been you know, for a long time his plan, which was you know, launching his own brewery to showcase really an extension of what he does in the culinary arts within the world of beer. 
Uh, and as we do every, you know, Thanksgiving for as long as I can remember, um, you know, we were drinking beers in my aunt and uncle's garage that he had brought back from when he was at Goose Island. And he turns to me and he goes, you know, Jeremy, do you have any idea what a business plan is? Could you put, you know, or help me put something together? And I paused for a second. I said, well, if you ship me a couple cases of beer, I think I can help you create something. So it really started, to be honest with you, I knew his beer was delicious. I knew his food was delicious. You know, I really started, I think, as an excuse for me to be able to indulge a little bit. But it really became, I think, as I looked more into it and I, you know, started to work with Jared that, you know, I think he had a very special take on beer, uh, you know, our culinary brewing approach uh, and more specifically the business opportunity itself. Very good. And just to make sure our listeners know, your cousin is Jared Rubin. Is that right? Do I have that right in my notes? Jared Rubin, correct. Okay, very good. And Mike, just let me also say out loud here that you've won two Michelin stars this year, which strikes me as really quite to your credit, especially in a pandemic. (laughs) So Mike, I'm going to hand the floor to you and and, uh, hear hear your next question. All right. Well, Jeremy, first of all, great to have you here on the program. And jump right into the topic of the program, leadership in action. Um, What does it take to lead a brewery? (laughs) You know, to be totally honest with you, I would say the number one, you know, skill set to be successful that I've learned, although truthfully was shown to me by my, my cousin, Jared, is really just listening. I think to build a successful business in the hospitality industry, you have to understand, you know, that you're working with a lot of different folks with different backgrounds. You know, I have regular calls with everyone from packaging vendors to farmers, you know, to alcohol wholesalers. Uh, And I think it's really important to understand how to listen to folks so that you can, uh, you know, understand what motivates people, you know, what they're hoping for, what they're looking for, you know, how to build a great environment uh, that people are passionate about and want to come to work to each day. Yeah, Jeremy, uh, uh, yeah. it's a great point. Uh, let's break that down a little bit. Uh, Anna and I tend to use a phrase uh, that almost pers- kind of perfectly represents what you've just said. We need to be active listening, need to have the ear to the ground. Um, have to hear what customers really do want, even if they um, don't quite know exactly what it is, but they're looking for words to describe it. That said, um, how do you discipline yourself to be a good and active listener? What what are some of the the devices? I I would say it's not easy. And it's uh, my ability to listen and truthfully prioritizing listening, you know, listening, generally speaking, has improved significantly over the years. You know, I I think shortly after I graduated, I was just, you know, ambitious, you know, wanting to be in finance in New York. And, you know, you think that you need to be moving a hundred miles per hour and always driving the bus, you know, but the reality is I think to build a successful business and and really a smaller and growing business, you know, business is just extension of the people who create it or who make it. Uh, And once you realize that what's really important, I think particularly as a manager, is building an environment in which folks can succeed, in which they're interested in coming into work each day. Um, you know, the only way to do something like that is to listen to them. And, and it's, it's I don't wanna say it's funny, but it's totally true. If you have a conversation with folks, they more often than not give you the answer before you have to say anything. 
you know, whether it's something as complicated as some form of a negotiation, all the way as, you know, simple or, or straightforward as hiring someone for a role. Um, you know, what's most important to me is finding the best people. And then second is building an environment in which they'll succeed. Yeah. Um, because I can't do everything here, yeah. you know, and, 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 uh, and yeah, so anyways, uh, I hope that answers. Yeah, that, that, no, that, that was great. The, the art of listening. Jeremy, yeah. uh, very quickly here, uh, a very different kind of question. Having been in, quote, capital markets and real estate and some very different terrains, from your experience there and maybe going all, all the way back to your, your years with us here at the University of Pennsylvania, have you found serve your leadership now, even though it's a very different field from what you were in before? What's carried over? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let me first say, you know, in, in my first roles out of school, I really applied a particularly narrow skill set that I had developed while at Wharton. And I don't think I fully began to appreciate or understand kind of the breadth and depth of my education until I was put into this role. You know, it inclusive, obviously, of my experience on the investment side and the capital market side um, as well. But, you know, in a role you know, a role like this as a manager of a business, the buck stops here. Uh, and, and I can't just work on raising money, you know, from our partners. I can't just work on, you know, developing the marketing or the branding. You know, you really need, you know, that full, that fully rounded skill set. So, you know, I, I'll tell you that the best example of the application of, you know, what I learned in school and, and shortly thereafter, yet in the world of beer would be last year. I mean, I think, for the first six, seven years, you know, we were growing, you know, my focus was almost entirely on adding fantastic people, uh, ensuring that our product is consistent, growing sales and distribution and building the brand. But what happens when you can't sell anything? You know, last year was a monster of an, acti uh, of an activity in, in terms of figuring out how to pivot and save your business. You really went, we went from growth to survival mode, you know, overnight. Mm -hmm. Uh, we've been very fortunate to grow over the years, um, and in 2019, we actually relocated uh, into a larger production facility, uh, and in November 2019, you know, as Dr. Greenhall alluded to, we actually opened two full-service restaurants, one of which is a fine dining restaurant. And then in March of 2020, as many people like to note, the, you know, many parts of the world, and particularly in hospitality, just came to a halt. Um, and, and that was where my entire focus went from, you know, adding states and uh, areas for distribution or, you know, figuring out how to build, you know, the restaurant um, to, you know, how do you finance a business, you know, through uh, an experience like this? Uh, you know, what opportunities are there to pivot sales channels? And truthfully, that's where you actually, whether or not, you know, I recognize at the time or not, I, I'm drawing back on, on coursework and experience and conversations, uh, you know, that I had, whether in school or shortly after school. Great. Jeremy, oh, so good. We're going to come back to that. Um, Mike, this spring, co-taught a course called Management 799, Leading in a Crisis. <laughs> and we had a number of guest speakers, uh, including, among others, uh, William Lauder and Alex Gorski and others who spoke about what, what is it like to lead in a crisis. So we're gonna come back, but let me just remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, I'm here with Mike Yuseem, and today we have the honor to speak with Jeremy Cohn, CEO of the Moody Tongue Brewing Company. 
Jeremy, let me pick up on that thread. You you said that when you came out of school, initially you used a narrow set of skills. And it really wasn't until you found yourself in this role that you drew on a wider range of skills and skills that I think I heard you say you had begun to develop in your education at Penn. Can you be a little more precise? What were those wider, uh, name one of the wider sets of skills and where? what's the anchor in your education? Yeah, let, let me give you uh, an ace in the hole here. How about management? I think that would be you know, one area that I think a lot of folks for better or worse, I, I don't think necessarily appreciate as much as they should and the importance of management. You know, I uh, I remember attending a, a special like uh, you know a Wharton alum who came in uh, and gave a lecture on her experience, and she was the CEO of a large travel company at the time uh, when I was a freshman. And I remember what she said was, you know, my number one goal is to always make sure everyone else in the room is smarter than me, and then number two, you know, to make sure that um, you know that they can succeed. Uh, and, and I think that's something that I've, uh, I've learned quite a bit from in terms of how to build the right environment, how to work with other folks. You know, from a management standpoint, you know, you go into finance and you're working in spreadsheets, you're underwriting, whether it's investment opportunities, sales opportunities, you know, capital markets, finding, you know, financing related opportunities. It's a very narrow experience and particularly mine because I was, you know, focusing on one industry in particular, real estate at the time. Um, but it wasn't until I had an opportunity to build Moody Tongue that just concepts we learned in, in coursework, whether it was understanding different personalities, you know, different management styles, how to interact with folks, how to lead folks, how to build a, you know, an environment in which folks will succeed. Because really, at the end of the day now, I mean, we have upwards of 40 folks on our team between the restaurant and, and the wholesale brewery. You know, everyone's different. I, I can't brew. I, you know, it's better that I don't brew the beer. Uh, or, you know, work with our culinary team or always necessarily work with our front of house, you know, our service team. Um, but what is important for me to understand is who all these individuals are and how to build a dynamic in which they'll be successful uh, and ultimately help lift, you know, the business to a better place. Uh, and I think, you know, one exemplification of this is really the accolade that we were incredibly honored and, and humbled and, and fortunate yeah. to receive this past year from Michelin. And I, 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 let me tell you, I, I certainly cannot take, you know, even a, a, a percent of credit for this. It really is an extension of the team. It is, you know, yeah. this is not myself. I, I build, yeah. I, my goal is to build an environment in which people are happy to come to work. And once they walk in the door, they're interested in creating or delivering an exceptional experience. And, and that's really yeah. management or at least management and hospitality. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, the, the idea of understanding personality uh, you know, types and, and Professor Yusin, even what you were saying earlier about listening, like the concept of listening, like I can't say the idea of listening really came up pretty consistently when I was working in New York. You know, I think it's very much talk, talk, talk. This is what we want to do. This is how we're going to do it. Um, but when you have a people business and, you know, in an industry that I think is that is really service centric, you have to understand people and you can't understand people or how to work with people or how to manage people, you know, mm -hmm. without you know, coursework and understanding or, or some of what I, I learned while I was at, at school. So yeah. I would say one one study yeah. in particular would certainly be management. Yeah, very good. Jeremy, let's um, pick up that thread 
Can you speak a bit more about how you pivoted in the pandemic and pivoted to such an outstanding degree that you were yet again awarded the Michelin Award? Yeah, let, let me say uh, this past year has has really been a roller coaster and uh, in, incredibly different for a number of reasons. And I, I would like to point out that I think what is unfortunately often overlooked as a manager is that, you know, I, I, I think a, a great business or at least a smaller business really is an ecosystem, uh, you know, and when you go through, uh, I think, a, a period of time like last year, what becomes you know, difficult as a manager uh, is you, you want to stay open, you want to keep, you know, selling products uh, because sales, you know, means positive working capital, positive working capital, you know, means that you can, you know, keep your team members employed and earning, you know, wages and compensation for longer. But at the same time, you know, the catch 22 is we're in an industry that really puts our team at risk because yeah. hospitality by its nature, you know, requires interaction with folks, whether it's other colleagues, whether it's guests. Um, and there's this push and pull and motivations of, in particularly last year, how long do you stay open as a restaurant before you close, right? right. Versus, you know, you don't want to put anyone on your team at risk of actually getting sick. Um, and so to answer your question, what was important mm -hmm. yeah. in terms of pivoting and particularly in the hospitality industry, is how do we keep sales going while keeping our team safe? And so what we did, for example, was on the wholesale side, the beer side, we transitioned almost all of our packaging to bottles. Um, you know, with the closure of on-premise establishments, restaurants, bars, et cetera, yeah. it was important to focus almost entirely all of our sales efforts on, you know, packaged goods that folks could take home. You know, in our restaurant, we've become very notable for a lot of specialty beers, everything from actually a shaved black truffle pilsner, but all the way to like a frozen banana Hefeweizen. Uh, and we started bottling some of those beers, small batch specialty beers that we would just sell out of the front door. But every little bit helped. You know, we also uh, on the restaurant side opened up a smoked meats business. Uh, you know, we have an incredibly, incredibly talented executive chef by the name of Jared Wentworth. And I apologize. Everyone here has the name as a name that starts with the letter J. Our two creators <laughs> are both Jared. Um, but, you know, Chef Jared has an entire constellation of Michelin stars. You know, this is the first year that he was awarded two stars, but he had won, won Michelin stars on nine previous years. Easily one of the most, you know, talented uh, culinary-minded individuals I've ever met in my life. Nonetheless, I would have to say in the country. And uh, as soon as we, you know, pivoted, we did have to close both restaurants. But what we, we did was we opened up a smoked meats business. And this was entirely, you know, his brainchild and idea. Why smoked meats? Why stay in hospitality, right? Well, smoked meats carry exceptionally well, right? And I actually grew up down in Houston. And when I was at, uh, at Penn, actually, <laughs> I remember I used to ship, I used to ship up from my favorite restaurants and smokehouses around Texas. You can get whole briskets, you know, jalapeno cheese bread, you know, barbecue sauce, you know, all the fixings for a pretty reasonable price. And I used to have, you know, I used to have parties and whatnot where I'd be slicing brisket and, you know, maybe a couple cold beers and whatnot that I, you know, would would get when I was my junior year, of course. And, um, but anyways, you know, you know, he came to us and, you know, we had, we were having conversations about how to pivot the restaurant. And he said, we have to do smoked meats. He said, number one, it carries exceptionally well. 
It's a very complicated, um, not only process, but produces a complicated pro uh, product. Yeah. And smoked meats pair exceptionally well with beers. You know, you can talk about everything from, you know, sliced brisket with, you know, our aperitif pilsner. Um, so he would do ribs, you know, a fattier, a fattier protein with like our sliced nectarine IPA, um, you know, pork and stone fruits often go exceptionally well together regardless. So why not take pork ribs and instead of, uh, you know, brining them or, or marinating them with, with stone fruits, pair them with a nectarine IPA. So, um, you know, it, it was important for us to think creatively, really, you know, our pivots were group effort and very much so an extension of, of conversation amongst, you know, Chef Jared. Uh, my cousin, Brewmaster Jared, and, and myself, but, you know, and, and sorry to take you on a tangent here. I, yeah, I think good. what's been, you know, very important is to figure out very quickly how to pivot operationally to keep as many people employed um, right. so that they could keep, you know, look, paying rent, keeping food on the table at home, yeah. keeping off unemployment, uh, and, and, and try to get through the pandemic as quickly and as easily if you can use that term as possible. Yeah. And Jeremy, were you able to do that? You said you have 40 people working with you. So we, we, we kept a, a decent number of them. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. we did have to furlough a portion of our team. I, I would say that we did keep uh, the majority of our team employed for longer mm -hmm. than almost every other establishment uh, mm -hmm. or similar establishment in the city of Chicago. But that's mm -hmm. also, if I got to call out my finance classes, that's a little bit of diversification right there. So, you know, that's the great part about having both a wholesale beer business and a retail restaurant business. Yeah. Is that, you know, one helps the other out. So, mm -hmm. you know, when the retail industry or, uh, or the on-premise industry essentially shut down, you know, the wholesale brewery was selling. Uh, and so, you know, fortunately we were able to pivot so as to keep some folks employed. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as we could reopen, obviously safely, right. uh, you know, we rehired exactly the same team members. Uh, right. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there's a concept in restaurants called family meal, um, mm -hmm. which is a really wonderful, uh, you know, I think part of everyone's day where a member of the culinary team, you know, puts basically a big tasty meal together for everyone. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we take a lot of pride in our family meals. And I like to think that our family meals are, you know, some of the best in the industry. And, uh, you know, when we first closed, we said anyone who's on the team, regardless of whether or not you're employed at the moment, can come mm -hmm. with Tupperware and take family meal for you and your family. Mm -hmm. uh, and you make a lot of food and you can say, you know, whatever you can take, whatever you can fill, you know, it's, it's yours to go. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we did make a, a pretty strong effort to help folks. Um, and I'll tell you, like, separate from the business itself, you know, unfortunately, in the realm of hospitality, not many folks are as you know, facile just with understanding concepts like personal finances and, you know, also navigating all the, you know, city, state, federal <laughs> subsidy programs and, uh, you know, like the rent subsidy programs that came up. So a lot of what I found myself doing was kind of twofold. Number one, helping other small businesses, you know, who are just had no idea, you know, how to pivot or what it, what the word grant even means. You know, some folks, unfortunately, aren't incredibly fluent in English, right? And how are you supposed to navigate something as complicated as the CARES Act, which I've actually, well, I won't say I've read the whole thing, but I've hit control F through it to find as much of the, you know, important parts as I could. But similarly, also with folks on our team, I did send out periodic emails to our entire company, you know, whether or not they were, uh, you know, employed at the time, you know, with, you know, basically bulleted lists of not just where to get tested and, and ultimately where vaccines were located, but also different, you know, mm -hmm. subsidy programs, whether they were rent subsidy programs, uh, you know, city sponsored hospitality subsidy and grant programs, 
uh, and whatnot and where and how to apply. And I just would put it into an email, bulleted it out with links, instructions and everything. Um, so, you know, like, like I was kind of saying earlier, a great business, especially a small business, just because I haven't run a monster business, um, is an ecosystem. It's a community um, and it's everyone's life. And, and you have to recognize as much as my priority every day when I come in is trying to do something special, trying to grow the business, trying to you know deliver great experiences. You also have to recognize that we've got at any point in time, 35 or 40 folks who yeah. come here to make a living. Right. Um, and that's incredibly important. So Jeremy, when you were uh, giving assistance to others, were these, for example, fellow suppliers or other com companies that you were working with? So just uh, clarify, clarify that for me. Most of them were truthfully other restaurants in the Chicagoland area. Um, yeah. You know, folks who own, whether they're, you know, I have some friends uh, who own, you know, quick service restaurants, you know, chains of a handful of spots uh, that might have like locations downtown or in, in the suburbs, you know, some of, some of whom are folks who just have, you know, single location restaurants, you know, smaller businesses. Um, it was really restaurants. I think, you know, and I'll take you another, another tangent here, but something yeah. I thought was interesting. Uh, what the pandemic really showed in the hospitality industry, in particular mm -hmm. with restaurants, is that most small businesses and most small restaurants really only carry 30 to 60 days of working capital on hand, right? Uh -huh. And so, you know, we're fortunate as a bit of a larger business and also with the backbone of, of the wholesale mm -hmm. brewery to have more flexibility. Mm -hmm. But when you've got expenses like rent and utilities, you mm -hmm. know, and whatnot that you're trying to cover and your only avenue for sales just closed up, and let's imagine you've never even heard the word grant before, right? right? right. You know, like, what do you do? Yeah. Um, and so most of the mm -hmm. folks whom I, I found myself, you know, reaching out to or connecting with or on mm -hmm. WhatsApp groups with, you know, mm -hmm. whatnot, were others who have, you know, small businesses or, or really hospitality and restaurant businesses, um, you know, that didn't otherwise know what to do. Oh, so great. Well, thank you for that. Mike, over to you. All right, Jeremy, great to have this dialogue with you. And I'm going to just warm up with a um, an oddball question, and that is, Moody Tongue, just give us a little bit on the, as they would say, the etiology of that. Where did that come from? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so a Moody Tongue is just a, a nickname for anyone with a discerning palate. We say yeah. it's, it's okay yeah. to have a Moody Tongue. There it is. To, to know what you like and, and to know what maybe you don't enjoy as much. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think what's important for us, and, I, and I'll take you again on another tangent here, is our <laughs> philosophy, which really is rooted in, in my cousin Jared's background. Uh, but we've qualified as, as culinary brewing, which is just the application of a chef's mindset uh, to highlighting flavors and aromatics and balanced beers. Uh, and, you know, what's important, I think, from our perspective is to have a very discerning palate. Uh, and, you know, we, we like to, number one, incorporate high quality ingredients, you know, number two, understand how to handle those ingredients. And, and number three, understand, you know, how, how, when and where during the brewing process, you know, to incorporate those ingredients. Yeah. Um, so Moody Tongue, mm -hmm. as, as its genesis, I think everyone, and I would suggest everyone, you know, in the conversation <laughs> right now has a Moody Tongue. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's important just to be a little bit more cognizant and, and discerning and I know you mentioned you've, you've spoken with, with several, uh, you know, wineries and, and folks from wineries, you know, previously, um, you know, but the same philosophy approach, the same concepts apply in the world of beer. Uh, and uh, so we have a moody tongue over here. All right, that's great. So that, that was my uh, slide back into the topic here. Thank you on that. I had a question about your own career. 
And my guess is very few of your graduating seniors, including you at the time when you were here, thought you might end up doing what you're doing now. Many thought though about going into real estate or investment banking as you did. So leads to the following question. Um, my guess is that experience not in the business you're in now has proven extremely helpful for what you're doing. So could you offer up an example? I've got a second part to this question, but number one, could you offer up an example of something you learned in the real estate business or investment banking that informs your management um, just about every day? And then the flip side, is there something that you picked up in, in that former world that uh, you, need, you needed to kind of shed, kind of move away mm -hmm. from before you got yourself in trouble? So what carries over and what shouldn't carry over? Yeah, let, let me, uh, I can actually jump right into this one here. There's a concept I think a lot of folks uh, speak to, uh, which you just jogged my memory on, but is analysis paralysis. Yeah. I, I think uh, for better or worse, I, I must have, you know, run about 100,000 sensitivity tables uh, in my couple years in, in finance before leaving. Uh, and I think one thing that's important to recognize, um, you know, as, as a manager of a business is that you know, don't, the devil is in the details. If, if, uh, it's important to focus on the big picture sometimes and uh, understand, you know, through underwriting a business, uh, evaluating business opportunities, you know, what the key variables are. Um, but you can't control everything. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're spending too much time, you know, in spreadsheets at looking at different scenarios, uh, you're going to miss the big picture. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one, one unfortunate fault, I, I don't know if fault's the right word, but, um, you know, uh, tendency you know, from my previous career is that, you know, analysts, associates, et cetera, you know, are oftentimes, oftentimes looking at, you know, opportunities 100,000 different ways, and, you know, every possible variable that could influence the outcome of a situation. Uh, and I remember in, in my uh, last job before, uh, I left the gentleman who ran the company, very well-known guy. And uh, he said, if you can't figure out the answer to your question on the problem on the back of a napkin, then you're focusing, you know, too much on the details. And, and I know that oversimplifies analysis oftentimes, but it's not totally far off base. Um, it, you're going to waste your time if you're looking at every minute detail. So anyways, the first point is, you know, don't get bogged down in details. It's important to underwrite business opportunities but really so that you understand what the big variables are that have the largest influence on, on um, you know, the outcome of the business. Um, so that would be one thing that, um, yep. you know, from my, my previous career that, that I learned. Uh, one thing that, that I wouldn't have wanted to take with me as much, I think, which we spoke to a little bit earlier, is um, I would say the aggressive nature, uh, the kind of, you know, walk before you talk, maybe a little bit. Um, I, I think to harp on perhaps the most important by far uh, thing that I've learned over the last 10 years is just listening to other folks. Um, you know, it, it's very easy to give advice. It's very easy, um, you know, to think you come from a great background or an educational background and you can figure everything out. Um, but the reality is, is until you open your ears to others with different mm -hmm. perspectives, uh, you know, you're not, you're, you're really not taking every, you know, every variable into account. And, and that's, you know, something I've had probably an extreme 
benefit from only in so far as, you know, the folks that we work with at the restaurant are just so different um, from anyone I would have interacted with previously. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being, a, I think, a little, a little bit more calm, a little bit more reserved, uh, always listening before talking, um, rather than jumping into a meeting and saying, this is what I think we should do, you know, play your cards last, you know, see, see what other folks are thinking before you find best how to interpret and respond. Jeremy, let me just offer maybe a 30 second summary of, of what, I've, what I've just picked up and then over to Anne and see what you think though. And that is your past is prologue and in particular, the ability to work with a spreadsheet to think managerially uh, those, those were not wasted years when you were in investment banking and real estate. And that much of what you do now is informed precisely because you did that for a stretch. What do you think? Absolutely. I, I think uh, I think working in finance and, and particularly at, at the companies that I was at, you help helps you build a really hyper analytical mindset. Yeah. Uh, and helps you really understand how to break apart situations or scenarios. Um, because in some respects, at the end of the day, business is still built on, you know, the financials and the numbers uh, and sales have to exceed costs. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would absolutely agree with that. I, I think, you know, that's something that I've garnered um, yeah. that is incredibly important. Great. Thanks. And over to you. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Jeremy, let me pick up that thread and also uh, pick up a thread we left in the first half of the conversation. You made a great comment, you had the uh, insight that most restaurants have enough cash for 30 to 60 days. So as you look at the hospitality industry from your vantage point, do you have uh, a recommendation <laughs> for others in order to stay afloat when the next crisis comes around the corner? Yeah, it, it, it's, to, uh, it's to really understand your sales channels. I think that, um, you know, one, we were talking about pivoting earlier, and I think, you know, my biggest takeaway from the past year, you know, was understanding where you have an opportunity to, you know, sell your products uh, at a very basic level. And I think the easiest example from a restaurant perspective is delivery services. You know, there are a lot of, a lot of businesses that have never worked with delivery services previously. Uh, yeah. And as soon as, you know, on-premise dining uh, closed, it was incredibly important to figure out where you could sell in order to keep money coming in. Yeah. Uh, you know, pandemic aside, you're not always going to have the opportunity uh, to take advantage of programs like those in the CARES Act, like the sure. you know, Paycheck Protection Program, you know, city and federal subsidies and state subsidies and whatnot. You know, what's important is to figure out at a very basic level how to stay in business. And that's, you know, understanding your sales channels and then how to manage expenses. Um, yeah. I, I would say one more tangent, um, all this may be going too much into the realm of finance, uh, is, is really just generally understanding the concept of working capital, you know, days outstanding on your payables, how to manage relationships with your vendors and your partners. You know, we wouldn't be here, period, you know, regardless of how talented those on our team are, without the farmers we're working with, the purveyors we're working with, the packaging suppliers we're working with. And at the end of the day, you have to re you know, recognize, especially on the wholesale side, you know, we're purchasing, you know, sometimes six, eight, 12 months of inventory of items, yet we yeah. have to pay for those items within 30 days, right? Mm -hmm. And through the pandemic, you know, what is incredibly, what became incredibly important was if you're not selling through your items, yet you have these payables, 
finding how best to work with your purveyors to manage those payables um, so that you can pay them back in a timeliness that keeps them comfortable, keeps mm -hmm. them from going out of business, right? But also keeps you in business. Because at the end yeah. of the day, a year from now, if we're all in business, we're going to be in a better position. And no one's trying to squeeze anyone else. So that was probably the number one skill that I took out of the last year that I would share with other folks in the restaurant industry is how yeah. to communicate with your suppliers to understand what's needed and what's not needed so that both parties can get through this together. Oh, so good, Jeremy. All right, let me remind everyone, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall with Mike Yassim, and together we're speaking with Jeremy Cohn, CEO of Moody Tongue Brewing Company. Jeremy, maybe a follow-up on that. Um, I'm just curious, you know, we, we are weathering the pandemic. We hope that everyone, the whole world comes through this on our, on our feet. There will be some crisis of some kind in the future, <laughs> not wishing one on us, but that is likely to happen. I'm wondering uh, if you and your company are thinking about environmental issues, sustainability issues, governance issues, ESG is something that is top of mind of many of the CEOs that we've had a chance to speak with in the last year. Absolutely. Well, I've not been asked this one before. I, I would say, uh, you know, being cognizant, I think, of environmental issues, sustainability um, of the topics that you referenced is, is one that is particularly close to us and, and we find quite important. And I can give you, you know, a couple examples, you know, aside from working with a large number of, you know, farmers uh, in the Midwest and around the country and actually the globe to some extent, um, a lot of what we focus on is, um, you know, quality ingredients and how to incorporate ingredients. And, uh, you know, the good thing about, one of the good things about the relationship between the restaurant and the brewery, for example, is that we use high quality ingredients on both sides, but they're presented in two very different manners. Uh, and yet we source together. And so, you know, on occasion, what we're able to do is source really neat ingredients, really amazing ingredients. Uh, and we can use those on the plate in the restaurant, but let's say they're unsightly, you know, where other restaurants, uh, you know, may discard actual, you know, food and other waste, we repurpose. And let me give you a great example. Um, and, and one of our fun examples would be our shaved black truffle pilsner. You know, truffles are, I think, one of the most indulgent, you know, luxury ingredients in, in the world. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, they're very expensive. Um, but we've been very fortunate to, you know, be able to work with truffles, both on the restaurant side and the brewery side. Well, on the restaurant side, you know, you want to present the most I ideal, yeah. perfect, beautiful ingredient when you come to the table uh -huh. and you shave that truffle. You know, mm -hmm. but one thing that Chef Jared and Brewer Jared are great at, at doing is finding how to repurpose less than sightly ingredients rather than discarding them. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about beer is that when we incorporate other ingredients, and not all of our beers incorporate other ingredients, but a, a good number of them do, it doesn't matter what the ingredient looks like. It matters what it smells <laughs> like. Um, and so, you know, I would, maybe if it's like, kind of like gastro sustainability, uh, mm -hmm. maybe a, a bad term for it, you know, but one of the things really focus on, you know, through the dual, uh, nature of our business is how to source high quality ingredients, how to work with farmers who really care about what they do, really take care, you know, of the land, uh, and their ecosystem, 
uh, but also how to handle the produce in the most efficient way possible so that we can maximize yield and, and, and not have loss. You know, we, we care very much about the environment, our ecosystem. It is the driver of what we do. Uh, and, and when we're really aiming to be, you know, one of the best restaurants and breweries in the world, we have to take care, uh, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. We have to take care of the ground too. Uh, and, and that's an incredibly important part of, of, of what we do. Very good. Jeremy, I'm just going, going to ask, I, I maybe should know the answer, but I don't. Do you work with a board of any kind? I don't. Um, Maybe on the radio, I, I should be careful what I say about uh, <laughs> our partners potentially listening. No, uh, we, we don't have a board, but I would say I do have a close group of advisors and friends, uh, mm -hmm. you know, from our partners, a gentleman uh, by the name of Andrew, all the way mm -hmm. to, you know, good friends that uh, I've known from school, like Samir, whom I referenced previously to, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, friends from my previous, uh, you know, uh, my previous work or my previous career. So mm -hmm. while we don't have a formal board to approve decisions, um, mm -hmm. I do have a close circle who's in the loop on big picture mm -hmm. management. And now let me let me just address that a little bit, um, maybe from the perspective of a CEO and, and having a board, not that I've necessarily had the opportunity to benefit from a traditional board. Um, however, um, as a small company and particularly one in hospitality and really particularly one in craft beer over the last decade that has exploded. Um, you know, when we originally started, there were 2,200 breweries in the country. Prior to the pandemic, there were 8,000. You know, in order to be successful, you have to be able to move quickly. Um, and I think that's something that we've been very fortunate to benefit from is a combination of very, you know, very supportive partners uh, and a structure with our partners that allows us to be very flexible and nimble. You know, we always have conversations with our partners. We always, um, you know, make decisions together. Um, but without the formality of a board, I do believe we're able to make quicker decisions on the fly to improve both, as we saw last year, the financing side of our business, but generally mm -hmm. speaking, over the last eight years, the operational mm -hmm. side of our business, the marketing side of our business, and the sales side of our business. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Mike, I'm going to bring you in. Yeah, Jeremy, we're getting close to the end here, and I'm really interested in what kind of advice or guidance you might have to you when you were an undergraduate, now with the benefit of a couple of years after graduation. So looking back to look forward, especially people who are, say, in college now, uh, what advice would you have, whether they want to go into investment banking or mm -hmm. growing or whatever it may be? Anyway, what, what, what's your guidance? Make sure you love what you do. I think oh, great. The, the easiest way to put it, and I'm going to give you a horrible story, but it, it involves my dad. You know, when I first graduated from school, I, I moved to, um, you know, New York and I, I lived with a good friend, also a Wharton alum, uh, Aditya Pasamardi. And uh, I remember we were outfitting our first apartment in New York and I, we were looking for mattresses. And, uh, you know, he said, Sorry, and I, and I remember I found this mattress that I fell in love with, and it was quite quite expensive. And uh, I I spoke to my friend Diddy, and uh, Diddy purchased a mattress for like 150 bucks, you know, from IKEA. And I remember turning to my dad and I said, Dad, like, how do I rationalize paying this much more for a mattress? And he goes, Well, Jeremy, if you think about it, you spend a third of your life in your mattress, right? <laughs> Conversely, you spend two thirds of your life, or the majority of two thirds, in your career. Uh, and, and at some point, I, I know it's unfortunately a bit of a morbid perspective, but you're going to be, you know, 
towards the end of your life and you'll be mm-hmm. looking back and saying, am I happy that I did that? Right. Um, and, and I think a lot of folks, you know, unfortunately mm-hmm. can be short-term minded in, in however they define, you know, success. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is definitely an oversight not to take your personal yeah. enjoyment into account. Um, and that's not to say I didn't enjoy what I was doing previously. I certainly did. And I, I garnered a lot from a lot of the, the friends and folks that I worked with. Um, you know, however, moving in into an industry like food and beverage and working with such incredibly creative and thoughtful people, I, I've learned immensely more uh, than I could, you know, progressing in my career otherwise. So, you know, do what you love uh, or find something that you're really passionate and excited about. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Jeremy, just to make a comment on that, I think we hear that from just about everybody with almost the same words. You're going to spend a lot of time doing it. You better like it. Uh, final question for me. If I'm walking down the street and I look in a window and I see a sign saying two stars from Michelin, I think I'm going to pay attention, look at the menu and probably walk inside. You've got two stars. Tell us what that means and then how it's affected how you run your business. Let me say just first and foremost, we are so incredibly humbled by the opportunity to even work with an organization such as Michelin, which has been around for over a hundred years, working around the globe with some of the best hospitality uh, businesses in the Mm -hmm. world. Uh, And and since we've, you know, started to open up dialogue with them, we see, you know, how passionate, thoughtful, uh, but also, uh, let me say flexible and mobile they are. You know, in the past year, we've seen them you know, develop uh, out there, like their mobile platforms. There's a, a Michelin app. There's uh, obviously they've built out their, their social media platforms quite a bit as well. Um, it, and it makes a monument of a difference uh, to our business. It really is um, an exemplification of what we've tried to do and tried to showcase over the last, you know, eight or nine years. I even remember trying to email right when we were starting up the Michelin auto company, same company, saying, could you please put me in touch with someone? I'd like to you know, share um, a little bit with them uh, in, in the realm of beer and what we're doing in beer. Because you know, historically, I would suggest a brewery may not um, you know, have been on, on the top to-do list. Um, but let me tell you, over the years, Michelin has done an exceptional job of, of adapting. And we've, we've been so fortunate to, to garner two stars. I mean, when we were told the news, I think we all just looked at each other over here. Um, and especially coming out of a pandemic, I, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's it's really, truthfully, it's a representation of what Chef mm-hmm. Jared and Brewmaster Jared are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the food and the beer that we're serving, you know, this May after the announcement is not different from the food and the beer, you know, that we served last January or February. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's a wonderful partnership that really helps, uh, you know, share what we're doing. I think the quality of what we're doing, the attention to detail and what we're doing, um, with others. And as the first, I'd say wholesale brewery, but more notably the first, you know, beer centric concept to achieve two stars, I think really elevates beer um, in, in folks' minds in a way that maybe they may not have previously thought. You know, it, it, we have a fine dining restaurant, the dining room of Moody Tongue, where we serve a 12 course, you know, beer and food tasting menu. Uh, and we have, you know, really, really incredible dishes where, you know, we're taking an incredible, you know, Mishima Reserve uh, steak and pairing it with a Flanders, which is this, you know, really, you know, really, I would say complex beer style, but has notes of tart cherry and and, and rhubarb, much like, you know, a red burgundy would. Um, It's really elevating beer, the idea of beer, uh, and and truthfully, at the end of the day, having fun with beer. 
um, you know, in, in a way that hasn't been done before. And, and working with Michelin and, and being fortunate to garner the accolade, I, I think is a showcase to folks that there's interest there. And, and that's all we're looking for. Great. Thank you. <laughs> well, Mike, we just have a few more minutes on leadership and action on business radio, Sirius XM channel 132. So um, I'm going to look forward here, Jeremy, with you. So here you are. You've accomplished so much. <laughs> what do you hope for yourself and your company in the years ahead? Great question. Uh, <laughs> look, I, I, I think our goal is the same this year as it's been in every year in the past. It's to share beer and food in a new and thoughtful way and present it in a way like we were just speaking about that really hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, beer historically did not always earn a spot uh, you know, on the menus of white tablecloth restaurants. Right. I, I think, uh, you know, a lot of folks, unfortunately, historically right. have associated beer with Homer Simpson and Doritos. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we have an incredibly talented, you know, brewing team here. And, and you know, in addition to our brewmaster, Jared, we've got Will and, and yeah. Paul and Andrew. Uh, and they're, they have a very special ability to, um, you know, to, to build and create beers uh, with nostalgic flavor, showcasing exciting ingredients. Mm -hmm. And similarly on the restaurant side, you know, our, our service team between Daniel and Aldo, our culinary team between Chef Jared, Chef Emily, uh, et cetera, you know, it's really bringing beer and food together in a way that has not been done before and, and growing to that effect. You know, what does that mean from a business standpoint? Growing distribution, you know, maybe opening up other, you know, retail restaurants or bar locations. Um, and, and, you know, finding, you know, avenues to kind of share our message. Uh, but I do think we have a, a unique, a very unique uh, niche at the intersection of, of craft beer and restaurants. Uh, I, I don't think anyone, you know, else has really done quite what we're doing here. Uh, and, you know, we're going to stay, we're going to stay as focused as we can on this niche. That's great, Jeremy. And you really remind us that the subject of Implicit bias and unconscious association is all around us, <laughs> even in the world of food, where we where we rarely think, as you said, as of beer on white tablecloths. But you are changing that. But we have just about a minute for a very brief after action review. So, Mike, I'm going to start with you. I'll say a word, and then Jeremy, you get the last word. All Mike. Right. In a very short period, three final points from me. Number one. Back of the envelope. I, I like that phrase, Jeremy. Uh, where are we going? Where, how are we going to get there? Get that to the back of an envelope. Number two, listen to others. After all, that's why we got two ears and one mouth, to be cute about that. <laughs> and finally, don't forget the devil is genuinely in the detail. That's Big great. picture, of course. But uh, we the, the high-octane fuel we really run on are getting those details worked through and solved. And back yeah. to you. Mike, I, I'm going to build on what you've said. I love all that you said. I would just add, do what you love. Do what you love. Yep. Jeremy, how about you? I think the one point that I would make is that a business is only as good as the people who make it up. There's no individual piece of the puzzle that can solve any particular or every particular question. Yeah. And so it's important to build an environment where everyone is happy, everyone's excited to come to work because all the pieces of the puzzle are required. Very good. It's a team sport. Thank you, Jeremy, so much for joining us today on Leadership in Action. 
Listeners, you've heard from Jeremy Cohn, CEO of Moody Tongue Brewery Company. I want to thank our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Mike Useem. And you've been listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 